We're going to be reading Romans chapter 3, verse 1 to 20 today. It's a somber text, and I've entitled the message, The Final Case. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and from chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has been building a case, and we're going to see the end of that case and the summation of it. So, if you would please pay attention to the reading of God's Word in Romans chapter 3, verse 1 to 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let us pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been studying this letter and following Paul's irreducible and inescapable logic from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to the end of this passage in chapter 3, verse 20. It's a difficult passage, and there are many ways we could explain it, 
But one of the most helpful ways to view this passage is to realize that what Paul is doing here is taking up the tradition of the Old Testament prophet. If you read the prophets, you'll notice that they often act as a prophetic lawyer, taking the law of God and accusing God's people of breaking it. And step by step, they make these accusations against God's people and bring them to the inescapable verdict that they are guilty. This is the reason why Paul uses so many questions, peppers them, shoots them through to bring us to this point and all of his readers to understand where they truly stand with God. The Apostle Paul is acting like a prosecuting counsel on behalf of God, seeking to bring in a verdict of guilty. Look at verse 19, we see the conclusion. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Up until this point in the letter, he's been addressing in chapter 118 to the end of that chapter, all those who did not have God's word yet. They did not have the law. They did not have special revelation, but that did not leave them guiltless. God has revealed himself in nature, in his majesty and perfection. He's revealed himself in their conscience. They know of a God and a morality, and yet they suppress the truth and they worship creation rather than creator. And then, in chapter 2, almost as if the Jewish and the moralistic people who are listening on are amening with Paul. Yes, those Gentiles. Yes, those pagans. How unrighteous they are. He turns the tables on them. He turns to those who have had the Scriptures. And he says, you too are just as guilty. You too are condemned. And he pulls out from under them every leg of the chair of their own righteousness that they were standing on. If you imagine a three-legged stool that they thought they were standing on as their secure place, he pulls out their morality and says, you sin just like the Gentiles. He pulls out their possession of the law and said, it only counts if you obey it. And he pulls out their circumcision and says, it only matters if you love God with all your heart. And they are falling onto the ground with this terrible pronouncement that they too are not justified in God's sight. They too are not declared righteous in God's court. And so the Jews and the Gentiles stand together before the judge condemned. That is all the earth, you and I, outside of Christ, every tribe, people and tongue that have ever lived ever will live, are all included in this. And here in chapter 3, we arrive in this prophetic lawsuit into the courtroom, and Sinclair Ferguson, in his masterful exposition of this difficult text, has been my close companion in my study, and he uses this image of a courtroom to explain this passage. And we're going to divide it, according to his structure, into three parts. Point one, the summary defense. This is the final appeal, verse 1 to 8. Point 2, the concluding count, uh, case for the prosecution. That's verses 9 to 18. 
And point three, the verdict of the court, verse 19 to 20. And Paul here is going to marshal arguments against us, not to bully us. He's not some religious zealot or self-righteous person that loves to make people feel bad. He is trying to marshal all these arguments against us so that we will gaze upon the holiness of God and respond rightly in silence and in awe. So that we, all of us, will be forced to approach the bar and plead only for mercy. So let's follow the logic of Paul's final case. Point number one, the summary defense. This is the longest point for this morning. See, after all that came in chapter two, as Paul dismantled Jewish privilege and disqualified them from justification in God's sight, denying that they have any righteousness of their own and that they can stand in God's presence, we have in verses 1 to 8 a final appeal from the imaginary defense of the Jews in Paul's day. It's as if a hand goes up to all that Paul has said and says, but what about? But what about, and they make three, but what about? Three final appeals against Paul's gospel of justification by faith alone. Whether these represent real people, because Paul, his practice was to go to synagogue, to synagogue, to synagogue first before going to the Gentiles and reason with them from the scriptures. Or perhaps these appeals originate from Paul as he was a Pharisee before coming to Christ. Either way, they lay up three objections that Paul wants to dismantle so that we can get to the end of his case. So the first objection is this. In verse 1, your teaching denies God's favor on his covenant people. Paul, look at verse 1. Then what advantage, this, this defense, this appeal comes back and says, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? It is undeniable, they would say from Scripture, that we Jews are the favoured people of God. But if we are, according to your gospel, Paul, just as guilty as Gentile sinners, if we're not justified in God's sight, if we have no righteousness to save ourselves, then what's the difference between us and the Gentiles? To which Paul replies, verse 2, well, what advantage? Well, you have much in every way. So he grants their appeal, but then he turns it on them. Of course, the Scriptures has much to say about how they're advantageous for being Jews. And Paul will give us one reason now. And in chapter 9, he will give a litany of reasons. So we have to wait till we get there. I don't know how long it will take us to get there. But he gives us just one. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. We expect him to enumerate a list and shout out all the benefits, but he gives just one, and he seems that this one is sufficient. You are advantageous because you had the Scriptures given to you. Who else on earth had God come to them and speak to them and make a covenant with them and reveal his secret will and knowledge? All the peoples of the earth did not have this, but you alone. But note the word, entrusted. They were given God's word as a gift for them to steward, to listen to and obey. You see, they believed that the mere possession of God's word was what made them special. But if you read the law, the possession is not what makes them special. It's what they do with it. 
Indeed, the very covenant that God made with people uh, with Israel required their active obedience to his word. Sinclair Ferguson says, every covenant privilege God gives to his people brings with it a covenant responsibility to respond with whole-souled trust and obedience. They were special because they had God's word, but it was only special to them if they obeyed it. And if you read the end of Deuteronomy, you will see that God is very clear. You must keep this word and I will bless you. You will be favored. But if you disobey and you forget me, you will be cursed. And the curses actually outweigh the blessing at the end of Deuteronomy. The prophet Amos spoke to the people in Amos 3.2 and tells them of their privilege but turns it on them. You only have I known, says the Lord, of all the families of the earth. You are favored. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. To much who has been given, much shall be expected. So that appeal fails. So make another appeal, objection number two. Well, Paul, your teaching that justification is not by our own works or our covenant position And that we too are under the judgment of God means that you not only deny God's favor, but you deny God's faithfulness to his word. They say, well, what if some of the Israelite people lacked faith and did not live for God? Will that nullify God's faithfulness? That he doesn't save his own people? He promised to save his people. And if they're faithless, then God is going to be unfaithful. If if you have to be justified by faith in Christ and some don't have faith in Christ, then God won't fulfill his promise. To which Paul replies in verse 4, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What does that mean? To what will God remain faithful? To his covenant promise. What is his covenant promise? What we saw. He will bless those who respond to him in trust and obedience, but curse all who disobey and turn their backs on him. He promised to bless and he promised to curse according to his law. And for God to remain faithful, he has to be faithful to his entire word, which is he will bless them if they follow him and he will curse them if they are unfaithful. And this is exactly what David knew, which is why Paul quotes David in Psalm 51. David knew after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, impregnated her and then murdered her husband and was convicted by the prophet Nathan of his sin. He knew that he was a sinner before God. He knew that there was no excuse for his actions. And so David says, and Paul quotes him in verse 4, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What he's saying is, I deserve judgment. You must be faithful to who you are. He knew he had no privilege to lean on. He knew that just because he was a circumcised Jewish male, he couldn't stand before God in righteousness. And so what does he do in Psalm 51? What does he cry out? What's the theme of that psalm? Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. 
all that remains for David unless he experiences God's mercy is he will experience God's faithful punishment. And so that appeal that God is being unfaithful to his word falls short. The third appeal, they raise up their hand once again. Your teaching raises doubts and even denies God's favor in his people. You deny God's faithfulness to his word, but it also, your gospel denies God's fairness in his judgment. The Jews of the day may have been saying to Paul, well, if what you are saying is true, and the righteous judgment of, my God, of God on my sin actually showcases God's righteousness, then since what I'm doing as a sinner helps display God's character as righteous, it would be unrighteous for God to judge me for my sin. They attempt this clever argument to catch God out and to discredit Paul's gospel. It would be, as the text says, unrighteous for God to inflict his wrath on us, they would say. To this objection that Paul puts in his own mouth, he cannot, he cannot even get through the verse without saying, I speak in a human way. How shocking and terrible this line of thinking was to Paul's idea of the holy God and his just judgment. Paul says, by no means... Translation, not in a thousand years. See, the argument is illogical because it denies its own premise. The Jews believe that God would judge the Gentiles for their sin because he's righteous. And if God wasn't righteous, he wouldn't judge the Gentiles. But because he's righteous, he's going to judge them for being sinful. But if he can't judge sinful Israel for their sin, then it would be unfair for him to judge the sinful Gentiles as well. Therefore, God can't judge anyone. Therefore, he won't be displayed as a righteous judge and therefore the argument eats itself. They continue with their supposed argument, well, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, verse 7, why am I being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, these arguments at first sound clever to the people. But how blind and how foolish a human is to think that we could stand in the presence of a holy God robed in our own unrighteousness and have a clever little logical argumentation with God, proving that he must therefore allow us into heaven on a technicality. My sin makes you look good, therefore you need me. Oh, how that one does not fear God. They have no understanding of who God is. If you have any thinking that on that day, you'll be able to worm your way out or get God out on a technicality. Do you think you can bargain and reason with God? Paul says nothing else then. Their condemnation is just. Sinclair Ferguson aptly says, in the presence of God, there is no clever defense. Verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No flesh no man or woman or child, no president or politician or sportsman or poet or singer, dancer, creative, 
businessman, mogul, entrepreneur, peasant, widow, farmer, worker, mechanic, no human being, no Buddhist, no Hindu, no supposed Christian, no human being will be justified in God's sight by their works. No appeal will stand in God's court. Paul's gospel does not deny God's favor. It does not deny God's faithfulness. And it does not deny God's fairness. All the appeals fail. So now, dispensing with those appeals, Paul turns to make his final case. Point two, the concluding case, verse 9 to 18. It's as if now Paul is ready to bring to the court his final argumentation. He turns in this courtroom and says to us all, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is his summary of his entire argument from chapter 1, 2, and 3. Jews and Greeks, the covenant people and the heathen, are all under sin. And what he means there, he makes clear in Romans chapter 6, he's not just talking about we do some naughty things. He's talking about sin as a force, a domineering power. Sin is not just the wrong blemishes we do. Sin is a power that dominates you and becomes your Lord and your master and you become slave of sin. And he's saying that all outside of Christ are slaves of sin. You cannot help but sin. You're tied to sin. You're wed to sin. You obey sin. And shockingly, he's saying even covenantal Jewish people are under this power of sin. And to prove it, he brings out a final host of witnesses. He calls them in to the courts and one by one through a litany of Old Testament texts, he accuses and all of humanity. He brings his case home blow after blow after blow to the pride and privilege of us all, beginning in verse 10 with the categorical statement, in case anyone here, in case anyone you know, in case anyone in the world thinks they have a chance. None is righteous. No, not one. Quoting from the Psalms. He scans the entire population of the universe looking for even one. Is there one human being in all of human history that is righteous, whether Jew or Gentile? Is it Abraham? No. Is it Noah? No. Moses? No. David? No. Anyone? The Virgin Mary, no. Is anyone righteous in God's sight? No. He nails the coffin of our own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness with that blow. There is not one. 
And then, like a careful doctor examining the body for sickness and malady, he goes over every aspect of our sinful physiology and renders his diagnosis. And we'll see how he marshals the scriptures against us. First, like the doctor, the spiritual doctor, he looks at our mind. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, our mind has been warped by sin. No one understands. No mind loves God by nature. We suppress God, verse 22 of chapter 1, and we flee from him. Sinclair Ferguson says, Great and mighty intellects have risen and fallen in this world. And when it comes to the truth of the Christian gospel, they have been as blind as bats. He moves now from the mind to the mouth, the tongue, the throats, the lips. Verse 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's a terrifying image. The mouth is a gateway to the soul. And what we see come out of our mouths is a mirror image of what's in our heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when the spiritual doctor sees all that comes out of humanity's mouth, it's a realization that inside is poison and death and destruction. He then moves on to their feet and lifestyle. Verse 15, their feet, rather than ready to run towards righteousness and goodness and blessing, the feet of humanity are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. What's the first story we see when Adam and Eve leave the garden or are forced out? The way of peace was not known between Cain and Abel, as one brother struck the other down in cold-hearted murder. And that way and that lack of peace has been the story of humanity, has it not? Is it not the very story of our world? Even not just in the headlines, but even in your own lives. Whose family has not been touched by relational discord and hatred? How many people do not know one side of their family? Not because they don't exist, but because the way of peace has not been known. And then he moves to head or to heart and character. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Some people may enjoy religion. They may even enjoy the Christian faith and the positive sentimentality and the joy of Christmas. But do they tremble before a holy God? Do you this morning fear God? Do you know him enough? To love him and fear him. Is he holy? Is he weighty? Is he God? Or is he God? Just another figure in your life. Many do not imagine 
that he's really there or that he will care or that he cares if they care. Many do not realize that all humanity, including themselves, will be judged. People swear by God's name, casually throwing it about. They mock God in cartoons and TV shows. And they use the word of God, but it bears no resemblance to the God we know from Scripture. Creator God, holy God, God the judge, the righteous God, even the truly blessed, happy, and joyful God. They don't know him either. And what a sad state for humanity, for any here, to not know your maker. What do the holy angels do in the presence of God? They fall on their knees and cry out, holy, holy, holy. What do the elders do? They bow their heads and throw down their crowds. The seraphim fly and cry and call out, holy, holy, holy. That's what creation and creatures are meant to do in the presence of God. And so Paul, the great prosecutor, brings out his witnesses. Boom. Head. Heart. Hands, feet, eyes, throat. All these scriptures marshaled against any human being. And he uses, like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 to 13, tells us about the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his side, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's what these verses are here to do. In Psalm 130 verse 3 says, and this should be our feeling. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand. It's Paul's summary defense, or summary case. Now we turn to point number three, the verdict of the court. The matter has been heard, the objections raised. All humanity on trial, Jew or Gentile. And of course, the verdict is, as we know, verse 20. No human being will be justified in his sight. The verdict from the court, guilty. 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 Every one of us. Everyone you know, all your family, all your friends, anyone sitting in this room, young or old, anyone yet to be born, guilty. And what Paul wants, what he's getting at, the whole point, the reason why we've spent so many sermons with such a negative tone for so long, so that verse 19 would come true, that every mouth may be stopped. The point is, is that humanity would be silenced. We would shut our mouths. 
No arrogance, no presumption, no excuse, no but, no hands raised, that all humanity would be silenced before God in his courtroom. And the silence ought to be deafening. You see, friends, if you, if you know Christ, you know that silence. If you have truly become a Christian, you know what it's like to come under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, to know that in that courtroom, you have nothing to say. You know it, don't you? I remember when I was 17, I knew the gospel, I knew that I taught people, I preached it. But I remember for the first time that painful, dreadful silence, but glorious silence too. I remember reading I've said this before many times, but the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I remember falling under conviction, realizing that's me. I, outside of Christ, have nothing to say, nowhere to stand. And I dangle like a spider over the pit of hell. And just one flame ought to jump up and hit that web. And I would be in hell forever under the righteous judgment of God. Do you know that holy silence before God when you look upon yourself in your sin? Nothing to say, no excuses. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Except to plead one word. To come before the judge and plead Christ. That's it. That's what Paul's doing. It's what he wants for his Jewish kinsmen and for the Gentile world and for you and I to raise no objection, to shut our mouths and do what David did and cry, have mercy on me. I got nothing else. See, there was only one in all of God's creation who would have a right to speak in that courtroom. And yet, he remained silent for us. The prophet Isaiah told us, in, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That one, that lamb, entered our world, Jesus, to bear our sins on the cross. And he did not plead his case. He did not cry out for justice on the cross. Instead, he only broke that silence to cry out what we should cry out in the courtroom. My God, you have forsaken me. He cries that into the heavens because that is what is happening upon him on that cross. The verdict, the judgment, the condemnation that should have been on you and I. 
And he hangs in the darkness, in the desolation, in the silence, with no word from God, bearing our sins, that we might be able to approach the bar and go to the judge and speak his name and say, Christ is my hope. Christ is my salvation. Christ is my all in all. I put everything on him. Would you have me in him? And our mouth and our heart ought to be shut now in humility before God so that then on that day we will not be. We will have triumph and we will have song. The appeal has failed. The concluding case is closed. The verdict is guilty, unrighteous and no hope. And perhaps you are still sitting here today wrestling and arguing, this can't be right. This is not true. I'm okay. There must be some other explanation. I will be fine. It will all pan out. Surely. God is merciful, is he not? And this text is here to floor you and to stop your mouth, to silence your objection and destroy any appeal. to remove any privilege, any assumption, or any remaining self-justification before God. And if you haven't yet done that, then right now in your heart, you come to that judge. You, You approach his bench and you say, have mercy on me, O God. Wash away my sins because of Christ. And the happy declaration from the judge's bench will be you are righteous in my sight you are justified and your record will be cleansed and your sins washed away if you are in Christ This trial is meant to bring you not doubt, but the deepest assurance you could ever have in your soul. Because Paul has shown there is nothing in you that got you there. There's nothing in you that got you righteous in God's sight. Therefore, there's nothing that can take it away. And so this text, rather than meant to make you doubt and be, oh, maybe I'm going to lose it. No, it's meant to make you rejoice and fall upon Christ again and rejoice in your salvation. It's meant to give you assurance. I know without a shadow of a doubt, I am righteous in God's sight because I've put my faith in Him. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my background, my church attendance, my baptism. I'm not trusting in my family's faith. I'm not trusting in what I did this week. I trust in Christ and in Him alone. And what else can we do then, friends? In response out of the assurance of our heart, knowing that this is assuredly true, that Romans chapter 3 says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What else can we do than sing? What else can we do than dance? What else can we do than rejoice? What else can we do than have comfort? What else can we do than rest in Him and treasure Him and extol Him, the one who bore our sins? The great hymn writer Philip Bliss wrote a hymn that was taken by Hillsong and turned to something else, but the original hymn is better. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full redemption, can it be? Hallelujah, what a saviour. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a saviour. When he comes, our glorious King, to His kingdom us to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Saviour. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, how can we thank You enough for sending Your Son? Oh Lord, I ask that You would communicate through the power of Your Holy Spirit the conviction of sin we all need that assuredly none of us can approach You clothed in our flesh, clothed in our works, clothed in our privilege, but instead we must flee and clothe ourselves in Christ. Lord, I pray and ask that now you would assure believers of their full and complete salvation in Christ through their full and complete refutation of anything they have done. And for any here, Lord, who still haven't yet put their faith in you, oh Lord, would you be merciful now great shepherd of the sheep, to call to their soul right this very moment. And may their sheep hear the shepherd's voice and may they come even now. Oh Lord, would you act? Would you move? And Lord, would you send us out with this pure gospel message, this good news that though there is no hope in us, there is infinite hope in Christ. And may we tell people this true good news and tell it in full and tell it with gladness and tell it to all. And Lord, would you empower us and give us the strength to do it. And now, O oh Lord, as we rise to sing, would you, by the power of your Spirit, give us the ability to respond rightly and joyfully and powerfully and with conviction to the glory and the majesty of your word and this gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.